to episode 193 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today's guest on the podcast is Andrew Main, whose The Girl Beneath the Sea is scheduled for publication on May 1st. Thank you so much for talking with us, uh, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I think uh, before we uh, dive into your new book, <laughs> we have to have a talk about the challenges of launching a book in a time of pandemic. Um, this is far from your first book, but it is the first in a new series. Um, so it's hard enough to get a book to market in an established series, but it must be a real challenge to get a new character and a new series out in front of readers. Um, what are you doing for this very special time we're having? Well, I, I'm very fortunate that I'm working with a great publishing team, and, and that's with Amazon Publishing and Thomas and Mercer, the division there that I've worked with. And they've been fantastic. And so being able to work with them has been wonderful, and that, that's helped. But you know, in the past, before being able to work with teams like that, a lot of the strategies I've used sort of work well today. I've always been more trying to engage with people online than in person because one, a lot of my readers tend to be more ebook focused, et cetera. So when I first started as an indie, I did a lot of online podcasts. I, you know, I've been doing podcasts for over 10 years. That was one way I would do live streaming. I've been doing that. So a lot of the same things I would have done if we weren't in this situation to promote have just worked well for now. And so I've been, you know, when the first book did its pre-launch, I was on every day talking to people, writing, talking to people about creativity, et cetera, and talking about the book. And that I think is an extremely useful thing for anybody. And often people go, Oh, I don't know if I want to go talk live because I only have a few people listen. And it's like, well, I've done book signings where I've had five people show up and I would rather have five people show up when I'm in my pajamas sitting at home and relaxed than have to go travel a hundred miles to have that happen. And if you do that every day, if you go pick it up, if you've got a book to promote and every day you're on there talking to people, that five is going to grow and you're going to get a larger audience. And it may not be thousands of people at a time, but if you know, every time you turn on, you know, your camera and you start talking to people, you get a few dozen people who show up to be there. That's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. So I would hope that a lot of authors right now look at this challenge and say, maybe this is a way to adapt sort of a new way because, you know, I was sort of that split sort of world where it started where, oh, you got to go meet people in person. And I'm like, I think there's a value to that, but let's not undersell the virtual. So to get to your book, it takes place in, Flo in Florida and, and Florida is an incredibly fertile region for characters who are, uh, well, characters. And with your <laughs> protagonist, Sloane McPherson, I think you have a doozy. Sloane is a, Sloane, I think, is a relatively normal, especially by Florida standards. But her family background is something that I would wager could only have imagined, been imagined in the state of Florida. So can you talk a bit about her? She's going to be your main character. And a little bit about her family. So her origin story. So Sloane is based in part on people, I, I grew up in Florida, and sort of taking some of my friends and sort of amalgamating some of their stories and some of the more interesting aspects of it. Sloane comes from a family of people who've been going to sea for generations. They've been people who've loved the sea, been part of the sea, 
And more recently, the last couple of generations have been treasure hunters. And Florida has got a lot of people like that. And the, the life of a treasure hunter is often not spent so much actually finding the treasure, but trying to get people to support you and to put together your expedition and to get the financial capabilities to do that. And you have to be kind of a bit of a fundraiser and a showman to that extent. And so I wanted to show what's it like for her to come from this family that goes through these boom bust sort of cycles. And I kind of, you know, her background's kind of like her, her dad and her grandfather might've been kind of a little bit adjacent to Mel Fisher and some of those big sort of expeditions and stuff. And they've gone through periods where they had money and then not. And what's that toll on a young woman who uh, she gets a lot, part of her form of years in high school, she gets a lot taken away from her. You know, she's, she's living a very nice life. She's going to private schools and all of a sudden, that's all gone, and Florida is a place where you can kind of buy yourself status, but when the money goes away, so does the status. And how does that adjust her psyche? So when we meet her, she's working part-time doing police recovery dives. She's actually studying archaeology because that's sort of her passion. And then you find, she finds herself in a situation where her past isn't going to define her. She's got to make choices about who she's going to be. Early in the book, you're writing from Sloan's point of view, and this is what you wrote. When I think of my father, I think of sharks. And oddly enough, it relaxes me. I think that says a lot about Sloan, her relationship with her father in particular, and by extension, her family, and also you, because you have an affinity <laughs> for sharks. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified of sharks, and uh, which is odd, because I just had my own Discovery Channel special. Uh, where I swam with great white sharks without a cage. And to see me do that, you would not understand this is the same guy that can be in a pool and hear a splash and convince himself there are now chlorine sharks and I've got to get out. <laughs> um, but it, it, it sort of kind of goes back to that came from sort of my own first, my first memory of scuba diving. I was like 13 years old and I'd gone through the training course with my parents and I'm scared. I watched James Bond movies and I grew up in Florida, I swam in canals, the alligators and stuff, but still the idea of sharks was still a thing that could make me afraid. And I'm on the boat getting ready to dive into the water. And I turned to the dive instructor because it's my turn to go in. And, and I'm like, are we going to see any sharks? He's like, no, we're not going to see any sharks. And we're in this nice kind of reef in Fort Lauderdale near there. I jump into the water, clear my mask, breathe, you know, breathe out to clear my mask, put it on. 10 feet away from me is a shark. <laughs> it's a nurse shark, but it's still a very sharky looking shark. And she's sitting there just staring at me like, huh, one of you. And I'm like, huh. And I wasn't terrified. I was relaxed. Even though my first visual I've ever seen in the ocean as a scuba diver was a shark staring at me. It was strangely, I'm like, well, I guess the shark in front of me, the one knowing a shark is there and seeing the shark is a little bit more relaxing than thinking there's a shark somewhere out there I don't know. Which, guess what? Anytime you scuba dive, there is a shark somewhere you don't know. And even when you're surrounded by great whites, like I was at the Isle of Jaws, there's the ones I see and the ones I don't see that were sneaking up. It's weird because you're like, ah, I guess I feel better that I see it. Like, no, you probably shouldn't feel that way. But it was relaxing. So you gave that sort of feeling to Sloan. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, you know... I have to say, uh, I once spoke to Naomi Hirahara, who's a, a local local Southern California writer. And I, we were talking about her series and, and one of the things that occurred to me in our discussion was this is fiction that can take people that might not otherwise go places somewhere that they would never go. I would never go underwater. I swim in the ocean on top. 
I don't like to be immersed in the water. But so this sort of experience and the kind of work that Sloan does is otherworldly to me. And it's great because it's like opening a door. I would be careful of saying I would never. (laughs) And, you know, for me, like I said, like sharks, great whites, whatever. I had seen videos of people in that environment and gone, oh, no, no. And then you find yourself being curious about something. And then that curiosity leads to the next thing. And you mention that to somebody and you find yourself in a different situation. But uh, what I like to do is to, you know, as writers, we take our own experiences. Like my experience with that first sight of that shark, that became her line of like, I felt calm because I felt calm when I didn't think I would feel calm. And I like to try to explore things I've done and maybe things I wish to do. Some of the things that she, I described in the first book situations, I later found myself in surrounded by bull sharks and things like this, which I don't recommend that. Um, and I think that's kind of the gift of writing is that, is that we can learn vicariously through other people's experiences. And then as writers, we can try to visualize things maybe we've never done, but in a way that people have never thought about and give it texture. And so I think that's, that's a thing that I like to put in my writing, both things that I've done or things that people have told me. I write about law enforcement. I have no experience there, but my father and my brother are both in law enforcement. My father, ATF, my brother, FBI. And I can take their experiences, put it in there and make, you know, a, a little more, you know, a little more realism to it. Sometimes I think uh, writers have, uh, you can, you, you cannot see my screen. So you have anticipated my next question, which is, uh, Often there's a very thin line between lawbreakers and law enforcement. You could say they're sort of in the same business in a way. And, and, and I, th- I think that was particularly um, so in The Girl Beneath the Sea. And it turns out that, oh, because it turns out that the only person who believes and believes in Sloan when she gets into a bit of a pickle is Joel, George Solar, who who is the former DEA agent who put her uncle behind bars. And Sloan and George are uh, an odd, odd couple. Is it Solar or Solar? Mm-hmm. Uh, Solar. Solar's either one's okay. fine. So uh, talk about how, how these two uh, ended up in the, in the sort of in the seat, in the car, sitting next to each other in the car. You know, my father had a very interesting career in law enforcement. And he'd worked both... I was a guy that went from going after moonshiners to a sky marshal, national response team, like investigating explosions to terrorism to South Florida, part of the, the one of these big high intensity drug trafficking task force and stuff. And he was involved in some very influential cases. But one of the things that was interesting was that my father never lost his sense of compassion. And I remember him telling a story once about having to take a witness who was a guy who had been convicted of something from some prison somewhere to go give like a grand jury testimony, whatever. And the guy had been locked up for weeks and hadn't taken a bath and just smelled horribly. And my father was giving my brother and I this example, because I think my brother had made fun of me because I'd been out playing and I smelled bad. And my dad said, I had to be in the car with this guy for eight hours. This guy had never bathed and smelled horribly. But he said, I never made a comment. I never criticized him. I never said this about anything negative towards him about this because he's still a human being. And that, that registered with me, the fact that my father is sitting, my father's on one side, my father's law enforcement, you know, amazing, you know, investigative person sitting next to a guy who's a criminal who has done harm and done bad things. But my dad still understands this is a person, this is a person that has rights, this is a person that should still be afforded some respect. And I think about a lot because often we watch shows where, you know, the villains wear mustaches, but sometimes they're your next door neighbors. You know, sometimes they're people you like. And, you know, I remember, you know, when I was in high school, there was a girl I liked. And then I found out her father was like, you know, 
organized crime. And it was this weird sort of thing where those lines aren't as clear as we want. I think if we do right and we do the right thing, we're pretty clear who we are. But what's our relationship to people who are in the middle or one side or the other? And George has a has a very uh, George Salar has a very interesting story that we find out um, up until the point that that he and Sloan sort of uh, join forces. Sloan has a very you know has an opinion of him that's that's uh, negative, and then she finds out that maybe it's not maybe he doesn't deserve it. Maybe he doesn't deserve mm-hmm. this negative opinion that he might just be a good guy and maybe her uncle really did do something wrong. Yeah, she she has to go through sort of a bit of maturing because George Salar is the guy that she associated with a lot of pain the family went through because Sloan's uncle had been arrested for trafficking and Salar was a person involved in that. And of course, that guy would become sort of the family enemy. But this book, we show that Sloan is extremely tight with her family, but she has to define herself on her own terms. And part of it has to say, I think I'm going to figure out who I think is good or who's bad. I think I'm going to figure out, you know, who, you know, what is right and what is wrong. And part of that is when she, you know, Solar, she meets him and he finds out he's a very principled person who went through tremendous personal sacrifice for the good of other people. And this has an effect on her. And you see how it sort of changes her approach towards things because she's given, uh, you know, another role model, so to speak, another person. And I, and a lot of my books are about that, about people around us and how they influence us. And so, you know, we see that side of it. And I've met people in law enforcement like that, people who've done undercover for extended periods of time and people who've, who've gone through psychologically things that I can't even fathom yet, you know, the end of the day was to make, you know, my world and your world a safer place. Well, it's interesting. Uh, they're on a very high stakes case. They're trying to find something that uh, members of the cartel do not want them to find. And so what I, I found was uh, this sort of alphabet soup of DEA and FBI and uh, Sloan's own, uh, you call it, I believe, Lauderdale Shores uh PD mm-hmm. and the DIA, which is not a lot of people know about the Defense Intelligence Agency. So, why did you pick them uh, to to join the sort of to join the story? Yeah, DIA and, and and nothing against the fine people who work for them, but you you find these different intelligence organizations that do different things. And like any organization, you're going to sometimes have people who are doing very good things, but sometimes you might have people who are doing things that are sort of counterpurpose. And, and it's just it's a, it's a truism of everything. And in looking around at where we sometimes reach problems, and it, it can be over can be overreach and lack of oversight. When we look at law enforcement agencies, and you know, I would say the American ones are among the best in the world, despite the problems we have and the things we try to fix. That they're a model for other places around the world because we try to have oversight and stuff, but sometimes we don't, and that's where the problem gets into. Is when you give people authority and power, but you don't check it, problems can happen. And so I wanted to use an example of we've seen examples of like where. And in I, I, my books, if I get in anything political, it's not because I'm trying to put forth a particular point of view. I just sort of say, here is a situation over here, or here's a thing that happened that we can agree upon what happened. Now, was it through malice or stupidity or whatever? I leave that to the reader to sort of decide. But I wanted to sort of illustrate what happens when you have a particular organization that basically uh, becomes problematic. 
because they take their mission to be one thing and it creates problems. And I was sort of thinking about how when we were, you know, when we were at the height of our involvement in Afghanistan, we were helping grow poppy crop heroin. And there's the relation was that that was a state way to stabilize out of terrorism and stuff but the argument's like yeah but then it shows up here and it causes death and destruction and are we causing a greater problem by doing that and and i do not have the end i really don't i don't mean like oh i don't know i mean i really don't know i don't know what's the right approach but i do know well that's going to complicate things and i think that's a conflict of interest and so i thought about that that example of you know here's the thing that we're doing over there which i think is kind of maybe not a good thing and what are the repercussions over here Florida has 1,350 miles of coastline, which is a whole lot of territory for both smugglers and treasure hunters. And the two pursuits, the two pursuits are not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. So what kind of research did you do? Did you, not to say that you did any smuggling. (laughs) Uh, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and Quote, you know, the nickname was Fort Lickerdale because, you know, during Prohibition era, whatnot, it was certainly a point of entry and, and even Prost and prior, you know, there had been, you know, been part of, you know, the, 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 the trafficking of, you know, booze and alcohol, South Florida later on with narcotics and stuff. And as a kid, you, you drive by these marinas and you see these, you know, power boats and you see all this sort of stuff and you think that's cool. And then you get a little bit older and you're like, who owns some of these? Where does the money come from from this stuff? And then, you know, talking to my father about his cases and stuff, and you find out like, oh, yeah, this was owned by this company, which worked for this group of people. And that money came from this thing here, you know. And then that that certainly shaped sort of that was just not this the recent sort of Miami Vice sort of era. But you just go back historically, you know, Al Capone, you know, had a place in Miami. You know, he had gambling institutions there. You had organized crime. The mob was there in the 20s and 30s and going further back. And so I'm like, it's just, you know, you go to one part of Fort Lauderdale and you find the history of this thing about, oh, yeah, this used to be where the smugglers would hide, you know, from the Coast Guard. You're like, wow, you know, this is like a multimillion dollar property now. And all of that's just fascinating. Um, and so also with uh, that much coastline, there's a lot of room for future cases uh, uh, because mm-hmm. Sloan is going to be limited to investigations uh, having to do with waterways, meaning she's got to stay underwater. Um, so what do you have planned next for Sloan and George uh, in their two-person uh, department? Well, and on the boring bureaucratic side is certainly going to be looking at what does that mean when things involving the water? And, and, you know, it's sort of as saying, like, how do we expand the sort of stories I get to tell, but also look at, like, what would an agency like the one they're doing grow and what they would do? And so the next book is going to uh, involve the Everglades, actually, and part to an extent and other parts of places. And the cases sort of come from there. And part of what I do is I took, for the first book, I sort of took some of the stuff that happened in kind of the 80s and 90s and then sort of extrapolated that into sort of modern day. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what's sort of funny was that like while working on it, uh, I, I had a version of it I gave to a friend and, and uh, spoiler alert, part of this involves narco subs. And they're like, oh, like they said, this submarine seems kind of big. And I'm like, oh, let me send you the video. And I, said, I don't know if you've seen the video of the, of, was the Coast Guard stopping this diesel powered, you know, submarine out at sea. I and they'd did. never seen, it. I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah. This, yeah, this amazing footage. This guy hops, you know, hops down, there's pounding on the hatch and there's people in there. And it's a big drug sub. And I'm like, 
this is a real thing. Like cartels tried to buy a Soviet era huge submarine. And so I loved, I said, let me take the thing that many people think like, oh, this is, this is made up Tom Clancy stuff. Like, no, this is real. It's just that, you know, it happens outside of the purview of, you know, where most newspapers cover and stuff, it becomes a smaller article, you know, and whatnot. And so I said, okay, let me take, for the second book, I decided to sort of explore some of the history of the things that are found in the canals of Florida, because there's so many canals that things end up in. Um, while writing, I already had my, my story, I was writing this, a new story came out about how somebody was looking on Google Earth and spotted a car in a lake in the middle of a community, and they pulled the car from there, and they found a body in there that belonged to a missing man. And this thing had been underwater for 20 years, or 10 years, or something like this, yet it was maybe 100 feet in back of somebody's house in the middle of this community, right there, because just under four five feet of water, it wasn't visible from the side, but overhead. And Florida's filled with stuff like that. There's a, well, there's obviously a lot in Florida uh, that are stories like this. It's it's a state that is rife with um, uh, interesting characters and weird places, and uh, and it makes for great reading. So um, I encourage everybody listening to get uh, the girl beneath the sea, and. Uh, read it and i look forward uh, to the next book um thank you andrew hey thank you so much <laughs>